1: Harvey Suikin joins us today. He is the co-founder and lead portfolio manager at Firebird Management, which manages funds dedicated to investing in frontier and emerging equities. It was the first Russian portfolio equity fund and has since expanded to include other countries in that region, think Kazakhstan and Georgia, where he has found stocks trading at massive discounts to intrinsic value. Emerging markets are often a blind spot for investors. Finding them requires risk, geopolitical understanding, discipline, travel, and throw in some good luck and timing as well. It's a specialized skill and we can learn a lot from Harvey's more than two decades of evaluating emerging and frontier market countries. Welcome, Harvey.
2: Thank you.
1: So let's start with your background. What drew you to investing and, in particular, investing in Russia and Eastern
0: Europe?
2: Well, I used to be an M&A lawyer, uh, and I had I worked for five years at it was a very high-powered firm in New York, and uh, I was sort of burned out of that, and um, I left uh, take some time off, and I started to uh, I wanted to invest my uh, savings to live off while I took some time off, and one of the partners there, who was a Warren Buffett fan, said, "Well, if you want to invest in stocks." Uh, you got to read this book, and he gave me uh, Benjamin Graham's Intelligent Investor. So I read that, and I said, "Hey, this seems pretty easy. I could do this." Uh, you know, so I uh, I started going to uh, Columbia Business Library to get these uh, value line, you know, like books uh, to to research stocks because you know this was pre-internet, so you had to go and get the books. And while I was up there, uh, I ran into a college friend who um, had just come back from working in Asia and early in frontier markets in Asia. And he said, he told me, look, if you want to hear about value, I got to tell you about the kind of things that we see in in emerging markets. Forget about six times earnings. How about two times earnings? And, you know, forget about 15% earnings growth. How about 50? Uh, So he definitely got my attention. We went to. you know, Tom's Diner, you know, from Seinfeld up there in Columbia. And over uh, lunch, he just mesmerized me with tales of uh, emerging markets, frontier markets. And uh, one other insight that he had at that first lunch, and I think it's informed the entire Firebird experience, was that he observed that most emerging market funds never actually seem to do very well. Like if you looked at Templeton's track record, who was the most famous mark mobius was the most famous emerging markets investor at the time he was not annualizing a particularly attractive rate and my my co-founder said you know there are guys in asia on trading desks who are compounding at 30 40% a year on their pas and uh, i was like well why is that and he said because they don't have all of these restrictions that templeton has with custody and with you know all the things you need to have the bells and whistles of a mutual fund. He said the right way to do emerging markets is in some kind of a private vehicle um, where you can get in when the insiders get in uh, at the bottom. And then when it gets listed on the New York Stock Exchange, that's when you take your profits, you know? And uh, great, so we, so in fact, when we set up, when we wrote our first Firebird uh, prospectus, we had no model, we created it. So there was only uh, one emerging market hedge fund. This is 1993 at the time, which was a fund called Cresis, which did debt. We were the first, I will I will make the claim that we were the first emerging market equity hedge fund.
1: Now take us back to your first trip to Russia. This is January 1994. You went in the winter time, and you said you could, quote, smell the opportunity there. You were absolutely sure you were going to get rich, especially yeah. with the Russian privatization voucher program.
2: Yeah. I mean, people will say to me sometimes, you went to Russia and you invested there and at that time, and wasn't it, weren't you afraid and you were taking such risk? And I'm like, no you don't get it. Like I was sure I couldn't wait to put my money in there because it was so obvious that, I mean, again, you know, this story has been told before by other people like, you know, Bill Browder, but, you know, we were looking at stocks that were valued at a 99% discount to Western comparables, like the oil company that we invested in the first voucher auction we were in uh, had a market cap of $40 million. We knew that in the voucher privatization, it would come out with about a $40 million market cap. And it had the same amount of barrels of oil as mobile, which was 40 billion at the time. So he said, look, this company doesn't have to be as good as mobile. It only needs to go from 99% worse to 95% worse, and we'll make five times our money. Well, in fact, the company didn't just go up you know, five times, I think at the peak, the company had gone up something like, you know, 50 times from that initial uh, voucher price. Um, so, you know, that was the opportunity. Um, and um, we, the problem was, you know, just sort of finding, there's just technical aspects of getting involved and how to get the money in, which broker to use and how to, and, and set up correctly from a tax point of view. So there were some challenges and then I would the last thing I would say is you know it wasn't uh, all luck i mean we had some we had a lot of luck i would never say we didn't but you know a lot of the stocks that people thought were interesting at the beginning of the russian stock market never went anywhere you know like uh, at the beginning everybody was interested in say Goom department store because that's what people had heard of and people were like ignoring the oil companies and so we were at least correct in identifying what sectors would be the uh, ones that had the long term potential. And so we got into oil, metals, telecoms, and uh, some of those things have appreciated, you know, a hundred times.
1: And what was the geopolitical situation like then? You know, Yeltsin had just disbanded the parliament and started this mass privatization voucher program. So, kind of, what was it like jumping into it at that time?
2: Right. I mean, you know, people. The, the big story that the trigger of all this was the uh, battle for the uh, in Russia in December of 1993, the fame or October 93, the famous scene with Yeltsin standing on the tank, and he had disbanded the parliament in order and 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 uh, pushed through a new constitution and a mass privatization program. Uh, so that was really the the key trigger of all this. Um, was the fact that they made a political decision to privatize. It wasn't about getting the maximum price for each company. It was about speed. Uh, They felt that they had a window of opportunity to privatize the economy before, let's say, the communists could get back into power, and they had to push it through as fast as possible. And that's why the program was designed the way it was, not to extract the maximum price. Now, I've seen privatization programs in other countries, uh, and they've been criticized for that over the years, but I think people misunderstand the political context, that it really had to be done quickly. Uh, Other countries, uh, which didn't have as high a risk of, let's say, uh, reversion to communism, like uh, Estonia, did a slower and uh, more... Um, And, and, and extracted much higher value in their privatization programs. But, uh, you know, I don't think Russia was wrong to do it that way. It just, um, it was the political context. And it's very easy in hindsight to say, oh, you know, they got ripped off, but uh, people would have to go back to 1993 and see why it was done like that.
1: And you had three other co-founders when founding uh, Firebird Management. Yeah. One of them was Dan Cloud, uh, who also is a, a mentor to yeah. uh, Jeffrey Bat. Um, yep. What did you learn from him? He obviously saw a lot of people making fortunes on emerging markets, but there was a white space with you know overall emerging market funds, and you know he, he had traded very successfully in Poland too.
2: Yeah, I think uh, like I said, Dan. Was the person I I mentioned who sort of got me involved in this and had that phenomenal insight about doing a fund that was like your PA, and 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 letting the structure of the fund be determined by how to get the investment result you wanted, rather than take whatever investment opportunities you could have based on a structure that you that you felt compelled to do, like a mutual fund. Um, So I think that was an extraordinary observation that he made. Um, we also, uh, Ian Haig, uh, our our third co-founder, um, was a, a Soviet studies who's still my partner today, and I was just on the phone with him a few minutes ago. Um, he was a Soviet studies expert, and so he understood very well sort of the political context of what they were doing, and through our long discussions, uh, you know, we, we I wouldn't say that we just leaped into it. You know, we spent a lot of time thinking about Russia and thinking about the politics, which I would say another uh, insight that Firebird has had over the years was, you know, how important politics are in getting emerging markets right. And I see this all the time. I've seen it for 25 years that people get so lost in the weeds. You know, what, what is the valuation of a company? What is, the, what is the PE? And they're missing the fact that, you know, a coup is happening that will, you know, cause everything to crash. Uh, And I've seen it time and again in emerging market funds, especially uh, global emerging market funds that are not specialists in any particular region are very frequently getting, you know, sort of uh, hammered and caught flat-footed, like with suddenly sudden revolutions and like Egypt, which took so many funds down. So I think, uh, you know, one of the insights that Dan, Ian, and I had early on was we were going to let the politics lead first, macroeconomics following right close behind, then look to see what stocks you could buy. Was there a functioning market? How liquid was it? That, I think that's the right order to look at a frontier market. Um, and uh, you know, over the years, we've replicated the Russia success you know, probably 10 times You know, in Romania, Kazakhstan, Georgia, Estonia and what these places all had in common was that they got the politics sorted out and by the way not always the same it doesn't always have to be a democracy it could be uh, an autocracy like the way kazakhstan is but you just have to look at you know what are the exactly how is this country being developed and is it consistent with capital markets development and gains and you know kazakhstan we assessed was Uh, Whereas, let's say, uh, Azerbaijan, another dictatorship in um, Central Asia, we never touched it, and we were right about that. Kazakhstan has been a phenomenal investment for us, whereas Azerbaijan never made anybody any money. So I say that was a a key insight that even to this day, uh, this morning, we were talking about this Russian, you know, hacking story. and. How significant is it? And is it going to affect anything? And you got to, you want to be an emerging markets investor, you know, you got to pay attention and don't just ignore it while focusing on, you know, what the P.E. is of your favorite stock.
1: Yeah, Jeffrey Batt talks about this wide uh, gap between the perception and the reality of an emerging market when investing in it. Do you really try and identify that, too, and look for that, too?
2: I think that's very true in frontier markets particularly, uh, which are not well understood the way Iraq is now. Russia definitely was when we started, uh, and other countries that we came to and were being ignored by the world that was not paying attention to the reality of what was happening there like Georgia. I think as markets mature and evolve, uh, I would say that the perception and reality tend to converge more. So if you look at Russia today, I do I do think there are misunderstandings that crop up about one thing or another. Uh, and you can see the markets move in a day for a day or two in the wrong direction based on a piece of news. But the gap is not what it was in 1994. It's a much more mature market. And we approach it differently. Uh, I mean, I, I mentioned that we have a big top-down focus, but uh, in a market that's as mature as Russia, I would say the bottom up and the top down are much more uh, synergistic and balanced. You know, it's a little bit of both, and you know, we and our and our financial and, and our uh, investment research uh, becomes more traditional value oriented or fundamental oriented, I should say, uh, as the market develops it becomes. You know, whereas in a frontier market, you don't necessarily need the same kinds of uh, things that uh, you would expect in a more mature market.
1: What type of data do you pay attention to when you are evaluating countries to invest in? There's of course more data available in these more mature markets than frontier markets.
2: Right. Well, in the more developed markets, I mean, you you wanna see a country that has a fairly credible central bank Um, and a currency that is reasonably stable. uh, It doesn't, you know, we we do expect some amount of depreciation in these currencies uh, and that you have to take that into account if you're buying, let's say a Russian bank, uh, you know, that you're buying a ruble earning organization and, you know, might expect the ruble to devalue a bit over time. The key is to buy growth, in those cases, to buy companies that are gonna grow faster and even in dollar terms, you can bring home a, a really good uh, return on it. Um, so you look at the currency, you look at the uh, companies, uh, the country's balance sheet. If the country runs def- current account deficits, how are they financed? Is it somebody that's always going to the global markets for uh, the capital markets? Or is it through foreign direct investment? If you look at a country like Georgia, uh, they run fairly large they have run fairly large current account deficits, it didn't bother us very much because of the way they were financing those with foreign direct investment. That's a stable source of financing. You look at other emerging markets with current account deficits like Turkey, where a large part of that was funded uh, from the capital, or global capital and portfolio uh, investors, You know that's a riskier play. Uh, it doesn't mean you won't do well, it just means you've got to be careful because when uh, the tide turns and people suddenly, and the markets close to uh, portfolio investors uh, and run away, like what happened, for example, during COVID. If you look during COVID, you know, the countries uh, that that had the biggest problem, uh, for example, Turkey got, got really hurt because partially because the capital markets suddenly were, were, were not uh, as interested in, in funding their current account deficit, whereas Russia didn't have nearly as much of a problem.
1: When assessing risk, when investing, as you just described, you know, have you had really any false starts before? I know you've spoken openly about Mongolia.
2: Uh, you know, I've been around for, been doing this for 26 years. And I would say that over that time, my partners and I have lost money in every possible way you can lose money in, in investing, uh, you know, from analytical mistakes, at uh, the company level, at the country level, at every level. And, uh, you know, so I think that um, the the most painful ones have been, I would say, the macro um, over-optimism about a macro development of a country. Um, Ukraine is, is a country that, you know, has always been the next big thing in emerging markets and never seems to, it's never seemed to work out for portfolio investors. Something always goes wrong. Uh, something political, it's usually a political problem, and the inability, for example, to extract uh, themselves from the grip of oligarchs. Um, and uh, so, you know, we lost a lot of money in Ukraine betting on the uh, first on the Orange Revolution. That was the the one that really was a huge disappointment back in uh, before the uh, crisis in 08. So, um, yeah, I would say uh, the biggest mistakes that cost the most money are a Kind of a uh, over-optimistic assessment of the macro. And the other problem is that if you it's very hard to get out. If you go into a frontier market with a lot of money, and then it becomes obvious that it's going the wrong way, uh, you're stuck. You know, you can't, you're married to these stocks and you can't like turn around. So, you know, I would say one of our biggest mistakes in the past, and now is something we're extraordinarily focused on, is liquidity risk. Uh, you know, you got to, it can be tempting in emerging markets to take down big positions in some Ukrainian company or some frontier market com- company and imagine the huge profit you're going to make. But, you know, if you, if you have a liquidity profile that doesn't match the, um, that doesn't match the uh, redemption terms of your if you're an open-ended fund, uh, you could get really a, a big mismatch and a problem. Uh, so we had that experience in the past, and so, you know, we've learned uh, also to make sure that we balance the liquidity. Uh, we don't use, we don't short, uh, we don't use derivatives. Uh, in fact, I've I've almost never in my life seen an emerging market fund succeed over time using shorting or derivatives. Uh, maybe some individual uh, prop traders do, but I've never seen a fund do it. Uh, so if you don't Leverage at all, your major risk uh, would then be liquidity risk, and uh, so those are the things that we've learned we've learned to manage over the years.
1: And you know, how would you assess the current emerging market landscape today? You know, I read an FT article this morning that said you know emerging markets have never been more popular. Are there some countries with potential in your region? You know, I know you mentioned Ukraine, but um, you know, what are you keeping a close eye on today?
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
2: I would say that, uh, you know, there have been a few false starts in emerging markets uh, in the last few years. Um, it seems like every time they start getting traction, uh, some uh, showstopper, macro showstopper, comes along. Uh, like this COVID this year, a couple of years ago was when the Fed started to hike rates and, and uh, withdraw liquidity. Um, so it's always tempting to say, okay, this is it. And then you find out it's another false start. That said, I do believe that this is it. <laughs> uh, I, I think that the, the dollar has begun A downtrend. I think it actually started a couple of years ago, and then because of these COVID and other macro events that got people back into dollars, it slowed it down. It delayed it, but I do think the dollar has begun sort of a a downtrend that could last for a while, um, and uh, is necessary to take some of the relieve some of the pressure that's created on the U.S. economy and our export sectors after years and years of a, of a very strong currency. So these things have to happen periodically. And it, and dollar strength and weakness is probably the macro factor that has the biggest impact on emerging markets. Um, so for us, that's been a huge headwind for the last few years, uh, since our fund is denominated in dollars and yet we're holding all these foreign currencies, rubles and euros and so on. But, um, So I think that the headwind has now become a tailwind. Uh, I don't know how big of a tailwind or how long it's going to last, but right now it's a tailwind. I mean, our fund is up something like twenty percent since the beginning of November, since Biden was elected, which one might have thought could be negative for Russia. Uh, In fact, we're up. Our Russia fund is up twenty percent since Biden's election, but it's also, if you notice, is consistent with the sharp decline in the dollar against global currencies. Within our region, I would say that um, clearly Russia is um, a very interesting value. Um, It trades, if you look at earnings, uh, 2019 earnings, 2020 is kind of difficult because of the effects of COVID and the oil price going down. But if you look at 2019 earnings, and you, you assume that we'll get back to 2019 earnings levels sometime in, let's say, second half of 21 or first half of 22, which is what I think is reasonable. Uh, stocks are trading at fairly undemanding multiples, uh, maybe the resource companies, maybe five five or six PE, and dividend yields in the high single digits, which is usually a pretty, a pretty good uh, entry point for Russia. And I would say that uh, you, know, you might have to be a little patient. Uh, if you can hold for two years, I'd say uh, Russian oils, Russian metals uh, and some of the blue chip uh, blue chips like sparebank and Moscow exchange are, are extremely attractive at, the, at these levels. Um, outside of Russia you know there are countries that have kind of fallen off the radar screen a little bit because of the lack of liquidity in emerging market funds and especially frontier market funds in the last couple of years. So the country of Georgia, this is a, you know, sort of Ronald Reagan's dream come true. This was a libertarian government with low taxes, no corporate tax, no corporate taxes, uh, flat taxes, all the kind of things you would want to see. And, 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 you know, from a economic macroeconomic point of view. Um, And there are two or three extremely good stocks that uh, are listed in London, including Georgia Capital, which is a holding company for the country, Bank of Georgia, which are two that we own, um, trading at uh, extremely low valuations relative to, um, you know, historically. Uh, Georgia Capital and Bank of Georgia were owned by, heavily owned by Frontier Market Funds, which had huge outflows Uh, on the last couple of years during COVID and even before. And now uh, we see that frontier funds are starting to get inflows again, Uh, should be very beneficial to these companies that are listed in London. So that's just one example. And there are other countries we invested in that it's kind of off the radar screen a little bit. Kazakhstan is another one that was popular with frontier market funds and got hit by the outflows, it seems, and now it's coming back
1: is your investment strategy changing now that we're in a period of extended zero interest rate policy you know as we mentioned massive currency devaluations as central banks print unprecedented amounts of money how will this impact investing in the next economy of a country that emerges out of disarray for you know for example
2: well as i said before i think that the um the dollar the downtrend in the dollar which is partially a result of the uh, zero interest rate policy and the lack of any interest rate differentials on US uh, uh, bonds, uh, on dollar-denominated bonds, um, I think that uh, you know we, we're just positioned to benefit from that period all across the board. Beyond that, I would say that um, the, if you believe that we're in a low deflationary environment that can go on for a while, which I believe is probably the case, and kind of low rates will be here for a while. Um, you know, obviously, uh, growth stocks, companies that can grow even in a sort of d- disinflationary environment become more attractive. So, what Firebird has done is to reposition the portfolio over the last couple of years to be sort of more oriented toward growth stocks in our region and a bit less toward cyclicals. You can't you can't go out of the cyclicals entirely. They make up a big part of our markets, the oil stocks and the metals. But, um, you know, we've definitely moved more toward uh, banks, tech, including FinTech. Um, and, and fortunately, there, are a lot, there have been a lot more listings in our region of, of those kind of companies. For example, our number one position has become this company Yandex, which is the Google and Uber of Russia. Um, we've been investing in that for a few years. Uh, that was part of our shift to growth. Uh, there's another company we own called uh, TCS. Uh, index trades in New York, TCS trades in London. TCS is the, the, the best fintech player in Russia. Um, that's another one that we kind of added to. Then there are others that we think have growth potential, Moscow Stock Exchange, Aeroflot, the Russian airline. Uh, so I would say that that's kind of how we have repositioned for this kind of uh, macro environment we seem to be in
1: you know you have said that ETFs have proven to be you know a poor way to invest in emerging markets why might they not be as suitable
2: the problem with the with the ETFs is that in emerging markets very often the largest market cap companies are not value creative. Companies. Uh, they're, very often they tend to be state-owned enterprises. Um, and in fact, I'm not against state-owned enterprises. We own Aeroflot and uh, Smearbank, which are both uh, Russian state-owned, but those are companies that are really run like private, more like private companies for the shareholders. But you also have a lot of companies uh, in emerging markets um, that are not that are kind of instruments of foreign policy. They're not really, uh, minority shareholders' interests are somewhere down maybe fourth or fifth priority for the management. And you can tell, you know, the way they present when you talk to them. But if you buy the ETF, you know, you, so uh, as an example, uh, you know, we were, we've been investors in Yandex and TCS for years and several years now. And uh, now they're being added to the index as they've grown and their market caps have grown. So if you were in the ETF, you missed that whole—you uh, missed that whole growth before it got to be big enough to be in the index. While you were sitting in, you know, Gazprom, which has gone from being the largest company in the index and it's been going down because it, it hasn't delivered for shareholders much over the years. And I would say the second thing is that. Um, if you own an ETF, it's going to be your job to sell. It's going to be your job to figure out when things have gotten too frothy and to sell. And if you believe that you're a really good market timer and know when to do that, you know you could. I guess you could do it. But uh, you know, in a fund like ours, it's our job to figure out when to pull back to shore. And I would say that over the years, although we never did it perfectly, and I'm always hoping to be better. You know, I haven't given up on, you know, achieving perfection, even though I never will, but I just want to be better. Uh, so we never did it perfectly, but we did preserve capital several times when it was necessary. And if you look at our long-term track record, you know, the re- we've outperformed our markets, our benchmarks by thousands of percent. And some of it is stock picking, and but some of it was just doing something to protect capital in the three or four times that it's been necessary in the last 26 years, I'm sure it'll be necessary again at least once or twice in my remaining uh, career. I hope to do it perfectly next time.
1: Can you describe your dream investor? Like what type of investor really allocates funds to emerging markets? What is a typical investor in your fund? Uh,
2: That's an interesting question, Harley. It's changed a lot because I've been in this business long enough to see it come full circle completely. uh, And it's When I started back in the 90s, you know, your typical investor was a high net worth individual or a family office, somebody very forward looking uh, and contrarian, somebody who, you know, and and very interested in in, uh, knowing who the managers were, not so much in whether it was a big name like Templeton, but actually getting to know who was actually going to be managing their money and reading our letters and talking to us and understanding. Uh, That's the way it was in the 90s. So individuals, and then some institutional investors. Uh, then we went through this period of massive growth of fund of funds and institutional interest in in uh, hedge funds, even emerging market hedge funds. And that boom lasted about six or seven years. And now it's really back to the way it was in the '90s, where most of our investors are uh, individuals, some family offices, usually uh, run by a very forward thinking person with a lot of investment experience themselves who reads our letters who kind of talks to us and tries to understand what our strategy is and why we're delivering something maybe better than than just an index fund or an ETF and institutional uh, not not as the institutionals are going to be more into the uh, ETFs because they're uh, um, you know they're really at sort of achieving asset allocation targets um that fit into an overall portfolio and they're not maybe as concerned about any particular fund but rather getting the asset mix right and a low cost basis so they're not right now kind of the most uh typical investor in a fund like ours.
1: You know, with information readily available with access to the internet and so many more people involved in markets all over the world, are you seeing these markets tend to be more efficient maybe than they used to be?
2: Yeah, I think the more mature markets that I was talking about, like the way Russia is today, it's a lot more efficient than it used to be. But I still see massive inefficiencies crop up, not infrequently. Suddenly, a stock will be um, offered. Uh, as an example, uh, you know we, we participated in a placement last week for a co- this company, this fintech company, TCS, that I mentioned. There were, there were kind of very clear reasons why it was being done at a very attractive valuation. Um, and it was not massively oversubscribed. I, I think people didn't go through I don't think they went through the same sort of analytical process we did to try to figure out that particular offering, why it was coming at that time. So I do see um, which which related to the particular need of the owner of the uh, controlling shareholder, uh, why he chose that moment to do it, and at a not at a very uh, rich valuation. So yeah, I see I see them crop up, of course, in frontier markets. The you know the inefficiencies are much larger. I mean, you can see things trading at, we own a company in Kazakhstan, Kazakh Telecom, only trades locally, has very little, doesn't have a foreign ADR or anything. And that one is, you know, valuation makes no sense at all. I mean, it's trading at something like two times EBITDA. And it has a listed subsidiary in London, which uh, has a market cap, which is equal to two-thirds of the market cap of the Kazakh-listed telecom, which would mean that the all the other assets they have in earnings are hardly being valued at much at all. So this is a, the kind of weird undervaluation that you see in frontier markets where there isn't a, a lot of foreign, there's no foreign listing, and it's harder to, to access it. Um, so they do crop up um, not as much as they as they used to, I guess.
1: Are you seeing a younger generation invest in Russia and other countries in Eastern Europe today? And you know, running some of these companies that you might invest in—is there like a, a Silicon Valley rising there that you've identified?
2: There's been a complete demographic changeover and the management of the companies since we started. I mean, when I started. You know, I would go to visit companies and it was like a red director. It was the same guy who was running it when under the Soviet Union. And often they would have, you know, Marxist memorabilia. And, they, you know, they, they, the way they talked showed that they didn't really understand what a public company even was. Um, now they're all Western trained, almost all Western trained or educated, or at least if, if they're Russian educated, uh, you know, all According to Western principles of capital allocation and profitability and, and margins. And so it's a completely different world. I mean, I used to say that in the old days, if I met if i if I met with ten Russian companies over a few days, it would be one or two pretty good meetings, one or two that were like weird. and they were the rest of them were just mediocre. And now, you know, there. When I go to meet with Russian companies, I come away wanting to invest in probably seven out of ten, and there's usually one that's mediocre and one that's still weird. Uh, but um, so that's on the on the management side. There's been a huge changeover in terms of the investor side. Yes, I think that active active foreign investors in emerging markets are becoming a rarer and rarer breed, like the like the sort of dodo bird. And I feel like sometimes I feel. I've been I've been called a dinosaur on Twitter, and uh, I, I I accept that. Uh, I I hope I'm just a you know like a cool dinosaur, like a Velociraptor or something. But I accept that I'm a vanishing breed of active uh, foreign investor in emerging markets. But that isn't to say that there aren't active investors. There are the there are the locals. I mean, if you look at the Russian stock market. It's increasingly dominated by Russian retail investors and by young fund uh, fund managers managing local money. Uh, And, you know, that's uh, the number of accounts the retail accounts have something like gone up eightfold over the last couple of years in Russia. And that changes everything. It makes the market more efficient because there's more people to find these second tiers and third tiers. It also makes the market more stable. In fact, I saw this year during COVID when uh, you know, the foreigners, as always, were selling en masse at the end of uh, March and running for the exits. And the Russian market was much more resilient than it would have been in the old days because the local investors were buying from the foreigners who were puking stocks. Um, so the, the uh, decline was shallower and shorter than it would have been in the old days. So yeah, I do see, and not just in Russia, it's the same in Romania uh, and in the Baltics, I see a lot more retail uh, participation in the stock markets. And I, I think it's a great thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think across the globe, maybe a silver lining of COVID has been this um, this this spark in financial literacy, people wanting to really take control of their own finances and money a little bit more with just this overall trend we're seeing in retail investors around the world.
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting, like. I think the US market there was a time in the 90s when the US market was becoming much US stock market was becoming much more efficient because I remember when I started buying stocks in the early 90s I thought it was very inefficient like I couldn't believe how many obvious undervaluations I found and I was a new I was a beginner and using these you know uh, Benjamin Graham book and it was easy and then I noticed that by the mid 90s the later 90s became much harder And I think that had to do with the introduction of E-Trade and all these retail uh, participation in the stock market, making it more efficient. And then it got out of hand. So then you had the bubble of 99 and 2000 and the NASDAQ crash. Um, So And then for a while, uh, the retail investors were not a big presence again. Now they're back, right, with Robinhood and, and everybody else. And uh, and they're very active. All these young traders, and I, I, there's a part of me that thinks we may be experiencing the late '90s uh, uh, sort of cycle, all in a all in one year, where they went from you know getting Robinhood accounts to buying you know EV spacs at you know uh, with for with 25 billion dollar market valuations and zero revenues, um, all in one year. Uh, so I I. I You know, having been around a long time, I would it does remind me a little bit of the late nineties, but just much more compressed. Um, and I, I know I remember how that ended. So I would be quite nervous about you know what's happening in these in these uh uh sort of tech stock bubble, bubble type stocks.
1: Yeah, I mean just week after week, we're seeing new record highs in the last two months in the US market. So
2: at the same time. I've been bullish on U.S. stocks since 2009, and you know, I thought when, in 2009, 2010, I thought the U.S. stock market was one of the greatest investment opportunities I had ever seen, the equal of emerging markets, because it was the first time in decades that the earnings yield on the U.S. stock market was actually higher than the bond yield. Not just higher, it was triple the bond yield. Uh, And which was, you had to go back to the 1950s for the previous time that the earnings yield on the stock market was higher than the bond yield, the 10-year treasury yield, right? Now, so the market's had this incredible decade and everybody's done well. Guess what? The earnings yield is still higher than the the treasury yield. So uh, for me, you know, people talk about all these ratios like CAPE and so on. For me, I live in the real world. Every day I wake up and I have to decide how to allocate my money, Uh, and so does everybody else. And you have a choice. You have a choice between cash, bonds, real estate, stocks, Bitcoin, whatever else. And for me, U.S. stocks, uh, besides my own funds, which I know very well and I feel very confident about, U.S. stocks is the place to be. That isn't to say I would put my whole portfolio into EV specs, uh, And you know, I I feel like I'm a little bit too old for that. And I'm not looking to you know shoot the lights out. I'm just looking to grow my capital at a reasonable rate. Um, but I'm still buying stocks. On on down days, I, I try to buy, buy index funds and buy the SP. And on up days, I try to buy the S P and uh you know, until until the bond yields go back up again. Which they will, I'm sure, at some point in the future, I don't know what else you know, I've, you know I'm doing some other things, venture some venture capital, some direct investing, a lot of real estate, but u s stocks to me are uh, still the only game in town.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and ads. Go to Lipson Now that's L I B S Y N ads.com.
1: Yeah. I've heard you talk about, uh, prior inv- prior investments in companies like VIA. Um, you, you know, you, you own gold coins. Um,
2: yeah. uh, not a lot, you know, I bought some, I bought some, Uh, There was an anomaly in the gold market, which was that gold coins of numismatic value were not trading at a, they were trading at almost zero premium to the gold price, which was something that hadn't happened in decades. And uh, so I just, I I bought some gold coins just to, just to have them. And uh, I was a coin collector as a kid. So, you know, for me to buy some, and not just gold coins, I bought some other numismatically interesting coins. What
1: about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency? I mean, we're seeing record No,
2: I understand the appeal of Bitcoin. I'm not one of these guys who like turns up my nose at it. Um, It's like gold, you know, it's, it's, as long as everybody agrees, I mean, to understand Bitcoin, you have to understand that it's not about whether you can use it to buy something or not. You, maybe you can, most likely you can't. It's, it's like gold. It's, If everybody agrees it's a store of value, then it's a store of value, just like an Andy Warhol painting is, or uh, an ounce of gold, or a classic Ferrari. Um, What it should be worth, well, it'll be worth whatever people say it's worth. Now, I haven't done Bitcoin myself, because frankly, I would have to have so much Bitcoin to to move the needle for me. I would have to have so much Bitcoin that it's just, I can't imagine myself doing that. And I feel the same way about gold. Uh, But for somebody who, you know, uh, makes it a, who doesn't have a, let's say a very significant net worth, who wants to make it a meaningful part of their portfolio, I say, you know, okay, but, you know, don't, but but like with gold, you know, you can't, you can't be shaken out. Like, uh, that's why I am. I try to understand it and be sympathetic to it. And I was was also put off a little bit by things like hard forks. You know, there was never a hard fork in gold that I'm aware of. So I was looking at Bitcoin and then they hard forked and I said, "Okay, this is too complicated for me. Uh, And I don't, you know, supposedly, you know, that was a one time thing. But then it happened again. And and then somebody claimed that the hard fork was wrong and too, too complicated for me.
1: Is cryptocurrency catching on in Russia, in Eastern European countries? Do you hear them talking about it there?
2: Uh, Yeah, I mean, it does tend to, in country, not so much in Russia, but in countries where they don't have confidence in the currency. Uh, I think in uh, Venezuela, it's become a big thing, um, in certain African countries. Um, And, uh, you know, that could really be another major source of demand for Bitcoin. Uh, in a way that gold couldn't be like, cause you can actually move it around easily. And uh, as long as that, you know, there isn't a big scandal and some local uh, depository disappears, I think it could, I wouldn't say so much in Russia though, because Russia has a currency that has, after all these many years has established a lot of credibility and the central bank has a lot of credibility. So I think, uh, but people are always, you know, the Russians love to gamble. Like, that's a thing. You read Dostoevsky, The Gambler, you'll see Russians love to gamble and uh, anything that is exciting and fun, you know, you're going to find Russians doing it. And so I'm sure there are plenty of crypto holders in Russia.
1: Yeah, it seems like cryptocurrency could be more of a benefit to some of these frontier markets. Um, But I would love to also, as we wrap, just the last question here. Can you talk about the value of travel? How important is it to get to know the country on a personal level before investing in it, you know, in Russia, in you know some of these other your Eastern European countries too?
2: I think in a frontier market, it's essential. I would not invest in a frontier market uh, unless I visited it myself and got to know got the feel of it, met with people in their offices. See how they relate to each other and spend some time there, the way we did in Russia, the way we did in uh, Romania, and, and the Baltics. Um, I think as countries mature, and I, as countries mature, I think it becomes a little less critical. Like I think you could invest in Russia today without ever setting foot in Moscow. You can meet Russian companies in London. You can meet them in New York. Now I've had more company meetings with Russian and Eastern European companies this year than I've ever had in a year before, all from the comfort of my laptop. Um, and uh, so uh, yeah, I think you can do it, but I think a frontier market requires some time to get the feeling for the place and the culture and understand what the people are like and get a sense of it. Um, but, uh, and I do miss it. Like, even though I feel like I I don't need to go to Russia right now to do my work. I can do it on Zoom and I can do it, you know, read research, but I miss it. You know, I love traveling. And if I ever, and it's a lot of fun, you know, in New York, like nobody knows who I am. I'm like nobody. But when I go to Russia, I'm like a big shot, you know, VIP and everyone wants to take me out. Everybody wants to, you know, they'll, they'll uh, kind of make sure everybody wants to meet with me. And so it's exciting and fun. And I love the country. I love the people and not just Russia. I mean, I love Georgia is the most, one of the most fun places I've ever visited. Uh, Baltics are beautiful. Uh, I would recommend any of these countries for tourism, Georgia, especially Georgia has uh, beaches, ski resorts and wine and wine country all in one country. Everyone speaks English and everyone's super friendly. And as soon as we can all travel again. Tbilisi would be one of my top sort of recommend. And when anyone asks me where to go in the region, I'd say, well, Moscow, you got to see Moscow and St. Petersburg. But after that, I would say Tbilisi. Great.
1: Well, Harvey, thank you so much for the time. This was a fascinating conversation. We really appreciate it. Thanks,
2: Haley. My pleasure.